This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should be above the law. A lot of us talk about that, but you actually done it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have Wayne Pollock. Wayne is an attorney who specializes in publicity. Is that right, Wayne? Yes, I like to say that I am an attorney focused on the court of public opinion. Okay, that's a much better way to put it than I put it. How are you doing today? <laughs> Michael, I am doing fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm a, a big fan of the podcast. I listen to it every episode, and um, every episode has great information for your listeners, and I hope I can continue that trend here. I appreciate it, and I think you will. Uh, so tell me about what do you do exactly? You said you work in the court of public opinion. I am an attorney who helps other attorneys and their clients ethically, strategically, and proactively engage the court of public opinion. And uh, I do that work to help those clients resolve their cases favorably. And I do that work to help the attorneys build their practices. Sometimes I come in as a consultant to law firms. Sometimes I come in as limited scope co-counsel to the actual clients. But the goal is to help clients resolve their cases favorably uh, through the media and through outreach to the public in a way, again, it's ethical, strategic, and proactive. So the work that we do for other attorneys and for clients tends to blend media strategy with legal strategy, with ethics compliance, and with defamation avoidance. And I launched this firm, my firm, because I didn't see that kind of picture being to attorneys and clients. I often see uh, attorneys and clients who are talking to the media in connection with active litigation, but they don't seem to have a strategy. Uh, they don't seem to be thinking about what's happening in court when they're saying things publicly. They certainly aren't always thinking about the ethics. And I've seen plenty of press releases where the PR firm or the law firm is clearly defaming <laughs> the other side. So uh, I saw a need in the market. And like you, Michael, I was a, a big law attorney. And uh, I thought that my services could be used in a different way. And I launched my firm a couple of years ago to do just that. That's interesting. I wish I'd met you a little more than 10 years ago. I actually was representing a state senator who got wrongfully uh, charged with some criminal stuff. It was all over the news because the uh, there was a district attorney who had lost an election. And when he had mm -hmm. just uh, very little time left in his uh, tenure, he indicted uh, two judges who had signed warrants for his arrest before while he was the DA, a state senator, the vice president, the attorney general, uh, you know, on this wide-ranging conspiracy theory. Uh, and so because he also indicted Dick Cheney and Alberto Gonzalez, it was all over the news. And suddenly, you know, here I am without a whole lot of media experience talking, getting quoted in CNN and Fox. And, you know, it's uh, you don't know what you're doing. It's a little scary. <laughs> well, you know, it's a great point. It's scary for many attorneys because unlike our normal litigation practice or a normal litigation practice, there are no rules. There are literally no rules of evidence. There are no rules of procedure. It's, it's somewhat of a, 
you know, all, 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 every person for themselves. And that's difficult for attorneys to get used to. And obviously there are ethical rules and there are defamation rules, but in terms of how you engage the media and what you say, there's really no set of, of core practices that are established. So for many attorneys, going to the media is something that they are cautious to do. And what I try to encourage my clients, either the attorneys or their end clients, is that you have to be thinking about the court of public opinion and engaging the court of public opinion in today's day and age as part of your legal toolkit. Obviously, publicity and public relations plays a nice part in your firm's marketing, and we could talk about that later. But what attorneys need to realize that is that in this era of social media, of online news, of things going viral, uh, you have clients' reputations at risk. You have clients' legal cases that are at risk, depending on who is talking about the client, who is talking about the case, and what they're saying. So it's uh, it's it's an acquired skill for for many attorneys. Some attorneys are are naturals at it, but others it takes time. And I think attorneys are slowly starting to see just how important the court of public opinion is in connection with. Uh, the court of law because they often find that what happens in the court of public opinion impacts what happens in the court of law that's interesting yeah i found my i have my two competing things of ego wanting to be on the tv wanting to be quoted and fear wanting to not cause harm to anybody uh, especially my client while i was doing that and then of course with the political client you have to think about not just the case but because the case was gonna we we're gonna win that uh but it was the the ongoing political fallout. We have to make sure that when this case is dismissed, it was clearly dismissed because dismissing it was the right thing to do, not because where there was a backroom deal or a new D came in and you know didn't have the guts to do it. So we really had to go above and beyond showing that we were willing to try the case. You know, we actually had to publicly say in court we were willing to try the case in the next three weeks uh, because mm. you know we didn't want a uh, accusation that the new district attorney was part of the big conspiracy, uh, for example. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of considerations that, because uh, like I said, the case itself was not I the issue in that case, because there was no way, it was all a fantasy. Uh, but the the fallout for it, uh, you know, things get viral, people, you know, for years people will be saying, oh, this guy took a bribe, or this, you know, it wasn't true, but we had to really watch how we handled the media part of it, if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. And, and you see this with now corporate defendants where their stock prices are affected, their sales are affected, their reputations are affected by what, what is said about them in the court of public opinion in connection with active litigation. And that's really one of the opportunities for trial lawyers and for other uh, plaintiff's attorneys to come in and fight that fight, fight that David versus Goliath battle in the court of public opinion, you can do it ethically, you can do it strategically, and you do it proactively, and it really helps neutralize the, the mismatch that sometimes occurs when you've got a big corporate defendant with a big corporate law firm that's lawyered up and is prepared to bury the, the solo practitioner or the small plaintiff's firm in papers or documents. And when you have that kind of dynamic, it's very hard for the, the law firm, the plaintiff's attorney to get around that because you just can't, you know, you can only file so many papers and only work on so many briefs 
and review so many documents at a time. But that well-placed article in the local newspaper, in the national newspaper, or on local TV, that usually can start uh, cutting through that shield created by the corporate defendant and the corporate uh, attorneys because they can file all the papers they want and they can send you all the emails they want in terms of discovery. But it's very hard to survive a constant barrage of bad publicity. Any corporate defendant can survive one day, one bad news article. But as, as an attorney fighting that fight on the plaintiff side, if you're thinking about how to keep this story in the news, in the public conscience, in the court of public opinion, you slowly begin to chip away at that, that armor because the defendants realize that people are reading the paper, people are reading uh, online news, they're, they're making decisions, and they're gonna be affected by the negative, uh, the, the negative connotations and the negative publicity that's being generated by the lawsuit. This is really cool stuff. How did you get into this? Well, so I had a public relations background. I graduated from college and worked in public relations for about four years. My last year there at that at that PR firm in the Philadelphia suburbs. I should say I'm I'm based in Philadelphia. I'm licensed to practice in PA, New Jersey, but I do my work across the country. Um, I worked at a at a local public uh, local public relations firm in the Philadelphia suburbs for about four years after college. And one of my clients was Fox Rothschild, which is now the Amlaw 100 law firm. A regional Philadelphia law firm just growing and growing. And that got me introduced into the legal area, the legal world, the practice of law, the business of law. So that inspired me to go to law school. And I uh, graduated law school uh, from Georgetown, went to work at uh, a big law firm for six and a half years as a litigation associate. And while I was at my big law firm for six and a half years, I never stopped liking public relations, never stopped enjoying public relations, but I started to see things. I started to see that my colleagues were impacted by what they thought the media and the public might say and might uh, do in connection with some of our legal filings and our legal arguments in our high, high profile cases. I saw instances of plaintiff's attorneys who used the media against my clients and, and my colleagues' clients, but didn't use the media as effectively as they could. And I saw other attorneys out there in the world not using the media in the way that I thought was most effective. And I did some research, I looked around, and there are some PR firms out there that specialize in this area. They call it litigation communications, it's a cousin of crisis communications, but I didn't see any firms merging the legal strategy and the media strategy. I didn't see any firms actively talking about how to comply ethically when it came to talking to the media on the part of attorneys. And I didn't see any firms that concerned themselves with defamation. And what did it for me was when I realized I could build this hybrid law firm, communications firm, where as an attorney, if I'm retained by, in a, by a client, an attorney-client privilege applies because I'm an attorney, I'm providing legal strategy in the form of media strategy. For some of your listeners out there, they may have had this firsthand experience where uh, the courts across the country are not typically willing to give attorney-client privilege protection to the work that PR firms do for law firms in connection with the law firm's client involved in a case. So for example, if law firm A hires PR firm B to provide PR counsel regarding client C, 
most courts across the country are not going to give attorney-client privilege to the communications between those three parties. And that is a huge, huge exposure for the law firm and the PR firm. Because Michael, if you had an outside PR firm come in and help you try to prosecute a case and get that case to uh, be uh, high profile in the court of public opinion, and the defendants are able through discovery to get all your information, all correspondence, all documents regarding public relations efforts, they've now got a behind the scenes peek at your, at your media strategy. And that could be a problem for you and your client. So the privilege issue is a huge problem when outside law firm, when law firms hire outside PR firms. Once I realized that I could help get around that by serving as an attorney, the light bulb went off and I said to myself, geez, I guess I'm just going to have to do this myself. And that was about uh, three years ago. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about, you know, you've talked about winning your winning your case in the court of public opinion. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, how getting good press basically helps get a case resolved? Sure. And let me take a step back and let me define sure. what I mean by the court of public opinion, because I think it's important here. And once once we start talking about, it, I think anyone listening to this, they're they're light bulbs will go off over their heads because they'll see the opportunities in their individual cases. So when I'm doing this, this work for my clients, I define the court of public opinion as people who are not parties to a legal dispute, but whose perceptions of that dispute could impact how the dispute's resolved and how the litigant's reputation or prosperity could be affected. So again, a group of people who aren't parties to a case, but whose perceptions of the case could affect how the case is resolved and its impact on the reputation and prosperity of a litigant. So when you think about it like that, obviously the media is typically the first group because they carry the largest microphone, even in today's age with social media and, and online um, uh, ability for us to create our own websites and distribute information ourselves, the media is still the biggest uh, bullhorn the members of the public, I mean, every member of the public is a, is a would-be juror, potential juror someday, uh, but you get beyond that and you think about, for example, the non-legal executives of an adversary. If you're thinking about how you as a plaintiff's attorney can help resolve a case for your client in the court of public opinion, by, by pressure, by, by getting publicity about that defendant, negative publicity about the defendant, positive publicity for your client and the case, you're really daring those non-legal executives to keep on pushing the case. You're basically daring them to say, oh, you think you can win this case with all this bad publicity in front of you? Elected officials and government regulators, we know that when there are allegations of, of wrongdoing on the part of, um, of defendants, sometimes politicians like to jump into the fray, government regulators like to get their pound of flesh, and as a plaintiff's attorney, you can help that process by bringing to light these uh, concerns or the concerns that you are that you are um, uh, raising in your case. Sometimes you have third-party advocacy organizations. I think one thing plaintiffs' attorneys don't do enough of is think about what advocacy organizations are out there that could piggyback on your case and piggyback on your client's cause and help you bring more uh, publicity and, and bring the issue to light. So for example, you know, if you are representing some uh, a client in some kind of discrimination case, whether it's race or gender, um, you should be thinking about what organizations are out there that stand for this kind of equality, that stand for 
the uh, attempts to remove discrimination in that particular area? And how could you work together to get them to uh, present your client's case in a way that you can piggyback off? So there are, when you go down that list, there are a number of, of, of people out there in the court of public opinion who we think of just the public as this huge, uh, this mass of people, but there's little groups within there that you as an attorney could be targeting and hoping to get the attention of. Uh, so yeah, so when we talk about the court of public opinion, we talk about resolving a case favorably for our clients, we obviously want to try and encourage favorable settlements. That's certainly done by turning up the reputational pressure. Uh, it's a great way to find additional plaintiffs or defendants, including potential class members. Uh, this, this touches on the marketing side of things, but I am willing to bet that when uh, listeners to this podcast get publicity for their cases, the phone rings or an email inquiry comes in from the website. When people read about uh, an attorney bringing a case, if they have a similar case, they tend that that client that would be client tends to contact the attorney. They see it in the newspaper, they see it on TV, and they're compelled to call. Uh, gathering crucial evidence from previously unknown sources, I'm sure most listeners may have had this experience where you get a phone call from someone. And they say, I saw an article uh, where you guys filed that lawsuit against you know that casino or that trucking company. My cousin used to work there, and um, you might want to know about this thing. And they give you some information that you may have never known about because they have some kind of, of expert insight into the, um, into the way the company works. All right, um, even a whistleblower. I mean, we've actually had cases where there was, we were being lied to and you know, someone's come forward and told us the truth. Absolutely, right. I mean, you have people who are willing to contact a law firm and right, give, them, give the, the attorney a perspective that he or she had no way of knowing, all because they saw a news article, they read about the case, and they feel compelled because they know something and they think they could help, especially if that person was wronged by, the, uh, by that company. So, uh, and also, you know, engaging the public in discourse uh, regarding certain issues of, of public policy. Uh, you think about the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement came about in large part a couple of years ago because of allegations that were made publicly uh, about Harvey Weinstein. And that just, just that snowball. Uh, yeah. And you see that often where there seems to be uh, awareness generated by some publicity regarding a legal issue, a legal dispute, and then the snowball continues to build until you get to a point where it is on the tip of everyone's tongue and at the top of mind. So that, those are just some of the, the legal service benefits from a client perspective. There are many clients, not all, but there are plenty of clients who want attorneys to tell their stories. They feel yeah. like they've been wronged. They don't want someone to suffer like they've suffered. And they want attorneys to tell their stories. And when an attorney does tell a client's story who wants their story told, obviously, ethically, you're going to want to have their permission before, before you do yeah. so. But you build a relationship with that with that client. And that client's going to be willing to give you referrals and, and hopefully uh, testimonials and favorable online reviews because you went to bat for that client in a way that most attorneys probably weren't willing to do uh, because they weren't familiar with how to do it. And finally, from a marketing perspective, as you well know, when you get publicity for your cases, for your active cases, these articles are seen in real time by prospective clients and your referral sources. Uh, it's instant social proof of the work you're doing. They see you in action. 
it's not just you sending a press release or someone visiting a website. They see you quoted in an article. They see you being an advocate for a client, and they think to themselves, wow, that Michael Cowan, he's, he knows what he's doing here. Maybe I should contact him. That's a lot different than just Googling, you know, trucking attorney uh, uh, Texas and hoping that somehow they get to you. Um, it's good for your search engine optimization in terms of your online marketing. Uh, you can reuse the articles for your own marketing benefits. You put it on your website, post it to your blog, put it on your social media feeds, put it in your newsletter. Uh, and one thing, too, that most attorneys don't realize, judges and clerks, when they're thinking about selecting lead counsel or a plaintiff steering committee for high-profile litigation, they're looking at what these other attorneys have done. They're looking at what they've done in prior cases, and they're gonna to look to news articles about that. So if they see a certain attorney who's doing a bang up job and who isn't being accused of wrongdoing and is seen to be a zealous advocate, that's gonna influence a judge and his or her clerks when they're part of that decision making, contrary to what attorneys might think that it's, that decision is limited to you know, the briefing. There's more to it than just uh, the file, the papers that are filed in court. Would you like to meet host Michael Cowan in person? If so, here's your chance. Trial Lawyer Nation is excited to invite our podcast listeners to Michael Cowan's Trucking CLE on Thursday, October 10th in San Antonio, Texas. Join us for a full day of trucking education hosted by Cowan Rodriguez Peacock. The seminar will take place at a location in downtown San Antonio, right on the historic Riverwalk. We will begin at 9 o'clock a.m. and end at 4.30 p.m. The 6.75 hours of CLE will also include one hour of ethics. This is a complimentary CLE with no fee to attend. However, seating is limited to 65 plaintiff attorneys. We've received an overwhelming response to this event already and do anticipate it will reach capacity before October. So if you are interested in reserving a spot, please send us an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. And now, back to the show. Judges and clerks are human beings, and they like to work on big things. They like to work on high-profile cases. So when your case kind of takes on a media life on its own, they pay more attention to it. They enjoy working on it more. They're more likely to, you know, get your case to trial rather than another case because that case is exciting and it's going to have a bunch of media and they, they like all the courtrooms outside. Like, I mean, the, oh, yeah. the reporters on cameras outside the courthouse and stuff. I mean, everybody has an ego. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. I've, I've had judges tell me that they will dot their I's and cross their T's that much more closely when they know that they're involved in a high profile case because they know more eyeballs are on them. And it's not just the appellate court, it is the media and politicians and whomever else. So yeah, to, to your point, judges are very cognizant of publicity that uh, is created by some other cases and they adapt accordingly. I wanna kind of switch now just cause it's on the top of my mind and then it's kind of going into the ethics a little bit. So. What I see is one legitimate purpose of public relations is to change what I call the societal narrative. So are people thinking of truck crash cases as we need to bring these lawsuits because there's 18-wheeler trucking companies out there that are breaking safety rules and killing people? Are our lawyers trying to take advantage and make mountains out of molehill to make money and, and drive up the cost of goods and insurance? And you know what they read and what they see has a lot to do with how those societal perceptions go. And I've seen just by the way the media, what stories are there, I've seen societal, the societal narrative on these issues 
swing back and forth during my 20-something year career. And I think that's perfectly appropriate and necessary for us to advocate that, you know, whatever our position is, that that is the right position so that, in general, voters and jurors think that, you know, there are righteous cases out there. On the other hand, you know, anything specifically designed to tamper with the actual jurors in a case, you know, get information to, to make them pre-decide the case, I think is crossing a line. So you, you make two great points, and, and let me give you examples of both of those points. So to your first okay. point about the narrative, absolutely. Um, we as humans, we crave storytelling, we crave narratives, and the, the parties that get to the court of public opinion first get to frame the court of public, get to frame the legal dispute within the court of public opinion. And I'll give you a great example that I'll hit unfortunately a little too close to home to you, Michael, which is the idea of tort reform. Just the idea of how that's framed, tort reform. So you have certain interests, call it tort reform. Other interests might call it, you know, due process deprivation. But <laughs> tort reform, tort reform is sexier. And that so far has won the narrative despite the amount of money that, that plaintiffs' attorneys might spend in lobbying each year across the country in, in the state house, in the state legislatures, it's still a problem when Obamacare. And they're they're yeah, really sorry. good at getting stories about, you know, medical costs are going up because of unnecessary defensive medicine. And, you know, every so often you'll see, you know, caught on camera, people seeking, you know, lawsuit money that are really walking and talking and doing fine and they're faking it. I mean, you, you see those stories and it's intentional because the other side is trying to change the social narrative. Absolutely. Uh, another example would be when Obamacare is being debated and the Republicans, specifically Sarah Palin, hopped on the idea of death panels. And mm -hmm. that was pretty much made up out of thin air, but it stuck. And the idea yeah. that there was the your death panels in Obamacare was difficult for Democrats to rebut because the visual was so strong. So absolutely, yeah. and, and that we can thank the the cognitive bias known as anchoring. It's it's well known in, in psychology and persuasion that the first bit of information that we uh, learn about something, whether it's a legal dispute, whether it's a, a negotiation over the price of a car, the first part of it, the first information we learn tends to have the greatest weight in the minds of humans. That's why we hear so much about the importance of a first impression. So when it comes to the court of public opinion, the reason why plaintiff's attorneys actually have a structural advantage is because they go to the courthouse first and, and reporters tend to report on the allegations in their complaints, in their court papers, they get to dictate the news cycle. It's a strategic uh, advantage that most plaintiff's attorneys get to uh, enjoy. They don't always take advantage, but, but they can. So that's one. And then talking about ethics, the ethics are, are pretty clear across the country in that attorneys, this is rule of professional conduct 3-6. This is the ABA model rule 3-6, where you're at, uh, Michael and Cal in, in Texas, it's 3.07 trial publicity. But the rule is basically that attorneys can't make statements that they know or reasonably should know will be made by means of public communication and have a substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing an adjudicative proceeding. And the Supreme Court of the, the U.S. Supreme Court has told us that we're we're concerned about impacting the jury deliberations. So right on point, Michael. They are uh, these rules are designed to protect jurors' ability to uh, deliberate a case and to protect a judge's ability to seat a jury for a case. And the good news for attorneys is that there are safe harbors 
that are large enough that you could drive a, a truck through. And the safe harbors in the rule basically say that attorneys can always, always talk about the offenses, claims, and the claims and defenses in a case, and they can always talk about the contents of a public record. Those two safe harbors alone are probably enough for the vast majority of attorneys in terms of using the court of public opinion. If you just stuck to what you're alleging in a complaint and the, the contents of the court papers that are filed in, uh, on the docket or uh, public records in terms of government papers or news reports, you're gonna be fine. But the, but the issue that attorneys run into when it comes to the ethical rules is the inadmissible evidence. You cannot, as an attorney, talk outside of court about evidence that you reasonably should know will not be admitted. And that goes into your point about the concern for throwing a monkey wrench into jury deliberations. If you steer clear of that inadmissible evidence, if you steer clear, as you'll see uh, in, in the rules here, if you steer clear of talking about uh, information that might not be admitted, such as uh, statements or confessions or uh, physical evidence or uh, test results or examination results, you'll be fine. So yeah, it, the, the rules strike that balance. And I think that attorneys don't understand actually how uh, bullish the ethical rules are about going to the media. They just assume ethical rules restrict them from talking about their cases. If anything, the rules are pretty relaxed in terms of what you can say up to a point up till you start talking about inadmissible evidence. And obviously you can't just make crap up. That's not true either. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so yeah, you, you, you could you could see that being an issue in, in some cases, but remember, if you're signing your, your court papers, you're going to have local rules regarding you signing your court papers and, and doing so in good faith and making meritorious claims. So I would think that if you're making stuff up in your court papers, then the ethical rules in terms of talking to the media might be the least of your concerns after opposing counsel and your state bar get through with you. Yeah. Well, I have a, another issue that I wanted to ask you about. So as much as public opinion in general can be on your side, there are a lot of a-holes online uh, that will attack a client uh, unjustly, no matter how just the case is. How do you talk, to, and I'll give you an example. We had a case uh, where we almost pulled the trigger on publicity. Uh, and so it's a, it was an un underinsured motorist claim so basically you know there's an insurance policy that if the other driver doesn't have insurance or doesn't have enough insurance it will cover and in this case the the policy would cover not only the insured but the spouse of the insured and in this case the the policy had two names on it the person and a spouse uh the person the spouse was required to be a spouse to be eligible to be insured under the policy uh, Texas has what's called common law marriage. I don't know. I know a lot of states don't have that, but if you live together as, as spouses, agree to be married, and hold yourself out to the other people as married, you are considered married under Texas law. Um, and so, but that is a common law doctrine. And so, in this case, the uh, one of the spouses had a name that could either be a man or be a woman, uh, and it was. Uh, the insurance adjuster, when they first opened the claim, assumed it was a common law marriage between a man and a woman uh, and was processing the claim. And then when the insurance company found out that it was a common law marriage between a man and a man, they suddenly denied the claim, saying, we don't believe that these people are really married. 
Now, we had a couple of considerations. One, we wanted to firmly establish before we opened the publicity jar that that really happened. We're not, we don't want to make an unjust accusation. We also don't want someone in corporate to go in and, uh, and coach someone that was fairly unsophisticated uh, to say something that, you know, to, to change their story and come up with a new excuse for denying the claim. Uh, so, you know, we pushed the case and we actually got an admission, you know, an unsophisticated lawyer in a court hearing flat out said that, you know, well, this is common law and there was no common law. There was no gay marriage under common law. And therefore, there is an open question under Texas law as to whether there can be a common law gay marriage. And we're, that's why we're denying the claim, um, which would have murdered this insurance company in public opinion uh, if it got out. Uh, and so we had to talk to the clients then saying, look, let's give them one last chance to pay you the, the policy limits. And um, that doesn't happen. We think that the media would run with the story. We think that, you know, they would settle the case very quickly because I don't think they could survive the publicity. But we're also going to have all, you know, 90 percent of the com- country is probably with you. But there are going to be people that find you on social media. They're going to say horrible things. They're going to threaten you. Uh, I mean, how do you talk to clients and get their consent about that aspect of it? It's uh, a difficult conversation to have. And let's, let's talk just first about the ethics. Under yeah. the, uh, the ABA last March released an ethics opinion, formal ethics opinion 480, which says that under the confidentiality, I think it's uh, 1.6, the, the rule of professional conduct confidentiality, attorneys must get their client's approval to talk publicly about their client's cases, even when what the attorney is going to say is already public in the form of claims or allegations in a complaint or in another document. So I would, uh, obviously, I don't know every state's uh, ethical opinions on the issue, but at least from the ABA, the ABA takes a position, which I think is problematic, that you have to get your client's permission to go to the media or talk publicly about your client's case, even when what you're saying is already public. So some attorneys- It's also a good way to avoid getting fired. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was gonna say, a great way to handle that is to use boilerplate language in your retainer agreements, and then just make sure you walk through the the client, uh, walk through that paragraph and explain why it's in there and what it means. Uh, But but getting that that kind of logistical issue and ethical issue uh, to the side for a moment, it's a difficult conversation to have, Michael, because the clients, as I said, some clients want their stories told. And some clients will tell their story come high or hell water. Other people, other clients, want things to be uh, done in a whisper and not in a shout. And I think we as clients, sorry, we as attorneys, have to advise our clients about the risks of all aspects of litigation, of all aspects of a court proceeding, including if we go to the public and if, or if the media finds out about the case, before we've proactively gone to the media. And we have to sit down with our clients and explain, look, we can do this, uh, we can achieve these goals if we go to the media and we, we bring uh, publicity and, a sh- and shine a spotlight here. But on the flip side, you should know that there are plenty of people who enjoy sniping at random people via social media through anonymous accounts or, or you know, the note section or the comment section of online media outlets. And you, you have to just see what the client's appetite is. And I'll tell you, I've had clients who were, again, come hell or high water, were doing this and, and negative comments be damned because they felt so strongly about the cause. And I have other clients who say, look, now I'm working in a white collar 
job. Um, I'm, I'm working for a company that um, is well known in the community, and I'm concerned that any spotlight that shined on me could adversely affect my career prospects uh, and my future at the company. And what can you say there? No, let's get publicity anyway. I mean, that, that's a conversation that, that's difficult to have, but it has to be done. So um, in, in that instance, I could imagine that a client might have um, some concern about going out, sticking their neck out and being the face of a cause and getting the blowback from people who, that, that perhaps vocal 10% who don't agree. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, there are different considerations. Like most of my personal injury clients, would love the publicity, to be honest with you. I mean, again, people are, like to feel important. They like to have, they like to be some part of something big. I think a lot of times, maybe in the employment law context, I mean, people might not necessarily want to let prospective employers know that they filed a claim because despite whatever the law is, I mean, a lot of employers, you know, will find a way not to hire people that have made the claim, even though the claim was righteous because they're so risk averse. Yeah, look, look no further than some of the recent gender discrimination cases in, in the legal industry against big law law firms. You have many of the uh, plaintiffs in those cases are going by Jane Doe. They're going by, uh, uh, they're, they're anonymous because they have a concern that should they be outed, it will affect their career prospects. And, you know, I would hope the stigma is 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 coming off of that, that type of legal issue and that kind of... Um, legal dispute, but I'm sure there are law firms that would say, well, look, this uh, would-be partner or this would-be associate is talented, but she also brought a claim against this big law firm, and, and I'm not sure that we want to go there. Right. And, and yeah, unfortunately, part of the blowback of the Me Too mo movement is people are using it as a, almost as an excuse to discriminate, saying, well, you know, I, I can't mentor a female because then if I have lunch with her, I might be falsely accused. And the, yeah, right. it's, the it's, fact it's, is, uh, I think the, you know, with 99.9% .9 of female professionals, I think the, the line is drawn. They, they put up with a lot of crap they shouldn't have to put up with. I don't, don't see a lot of claims being made that aren't. Uh, yeah. You know, people sure. the, the, the pain to the woman in making the claim is usually much worse than any benefit. So I, I, don't, I don't think that's real, but I mean, the perception's out there. And I yeah, think it's exactly. unfortunately part of the blowback. Yeah. So, so let's kind of get back to this. So let's say someone decides, hey, I've got a case, the media, you know, well, first of all, how do you get it? How do you figure out whether the media might be interested in your case, whether the this is something you can get into the court of public opinion? Yeah, well, it, it's a good question to ask. And not every legal dispute is newsworthy. And the challenge as an attorney who's seeking publicity for a case uh, is determining, is it worthwhile to... Uh, go to bat for the media? Is it worthwhile to hold a press conference to announce the filing of this case? Uh, there, there are very few things worse in life in terms of uh, the media than holding a press conference for which nobody shows up. Uh, that is not a good day for anybody involved in, in, that, um, in that endeavor. So usually there are a core, I don't know, half dozen or so things that will shape whether a case is newsworthy or not. Number one is typically if the case concerns a high profile event or an already publicized event. So for example, if you're bringing a civil action in connection with some criminal wrongdoing that's already been publicized, or you have uh, prior news coverage of some kind of dispute that has now evolved to a legal dispute, certainly that might be the kind of case that's going to get 
publicity. Uh, if prominent parties are involved, such as governments, government officials, business executives, celebrities, that kind of uh, story is, is often picked up by the news uh, media outlets. If it contains sensational, unusual, or horrifying facts, remember many, many years ago, the, the hot coffee McDonald's case, that was that's a pretty basic case, but, but the fact that someone would dare allege their coffee was too hot, it, it, it gave uh, a spin to that case that just took off. Um, it has a compelling human face, Perhaps it's indicative of a trend, so like your, your uninsured, uninsured motorist case. I mean, that could have been a case that was highlighted by, by the, the media because it was a trend or, or it had a human face, someone who was common law married to another person of the same gender, and you have an insurance company not willing to grant uh, coverage or cover some kind of incidents. That applies to many, many people across the country. That could be the type of thing that's picked up by the media. And sometimes you have things that have a, a, a cases that have a broader societal or public policy implication running through it, just like, again, that, that um, uninsured motorist case. So you as an attorney need to be thinking about what the case, how you can frame a case in the court of public opinion, how you can frame it to the media. And one of the great things about going to the media and engaging the court of public opinion is that if you're a solo or a small law firm, you could certainly do this yourself. I wouldn't encourage you to do more of the advanced things, but in terms of notifying the media about cases that you're about to file or handling a phone call from a reporter who finds one of your cases, that is something that most small law firms can handle on their own if they don't have the budget to hire outside PR people. But on the flip side, you have to know how to frame and translate the legal dispute for reporters. One thing that I see done poorly time and time again by attorneys is that they don't understand how to translate what's in their 10, 20, 50, 80 page complaint into plain English, non-legalese that can be understood by a reporter and thus properly conveyed by a reporter or other third party to the public. So part of that is, is decoding and breaking down your legal terms and your legal claims into more easily digestible fragments. But it's also important to frame and to give context for the claims. So you'll often find when it comes to working with the media, they're more concerned about the facts than they are the legal claims. If you're talking to a legal trade publication or maybe a business publication, they might be interested if you've got some novel theories of law that you're trying to push for the first time, especially if it could interfere or impact that industry publications industry and its readers. But for general news, media, uh, general media outlets, they're more concerned about the facts and the facts are what's interesting. So you as an attorney need to be thinking, how do I, how do I decode these facts? How do I make it clear that when I say that there are claims of negligence or a breach of contract or you know, some kind of gross negligence, what, what am I actually saying? What did they do wrong? Uh, and beyond that, how do you frame a case? in a way that's most compelling. So we just discussed you know, the, the, the uh, common law marriage case that you, that you had. And one way to describe it is an insurance company, um, insurance company giving benefits to same sex couples. All right, well, that's, you know, that's, that's okay, that, that's semi-sexy, but can you, can you 
frame it a little bit more in a way that comes across as um, un, uh, uh, that comes across as a media being unable to resist. How can you frame that? You know, insurance company treating same-sex couples like it's the 1950s, or same-sex, same-sex, sorry, insurance company to same-sex couple. You know, you're not really a married couple. Something like that. Obviously, I'm just thinking. Right. My head, but, but how do you make things more sexy? And that is a challenge for attorneys because we're very much used to asserting certain factors and certain elements of a legal claim in order to prevail on the legal claim. We don't always think about the facts that are going into those elements and how to uh, translate them and frame them. Trial Lawyer Nation is proud to partner with Trial Guides, leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers with books, DVDs, CLEs, live webinars, and more. Visit trialguides.com and use code TLN19 at checkout to receive our exclusive podcast discount on any Trial Guides products. That's TLN for Trail Lawyer Nation and the number 19. Discount expires December 31st, 2019. And now back to the show. And so how how does one then, okay, you, you decide, okay, I've got a case. This is a case that may be good uh, for the media. There may be interest. How do I get them to talk about it? Sure. So the first thing you have to do is, is be proactive. I like to say that when it comes to new cases being filed or newsworthy developments in cases uh, coming about, those instances are needles in a haystack for reporters. Think about PACER. PACER is not Google. You can't just search you know, gender discrimination, uh, Dallas Mavericks, and find a lawsuit <laughs> alleging that that happens. It's just not how it works. And, and good luck doing anything with, with most court, uh, state court e-filing or, or doc, uh, docket systems. So you have to be proactive and you have to be able to tell reporters what's going on in a case, either because you're filing a complaint or you survived a motion to dismiss or you won a summary judgment or you got a verdict or, or, or whatever. So you wanna be proactive, one. Two, you have to know who you're talking to and, and think about what reporter is the most appropriate reporter for the, the story. In most daily newspapers across the country, you're going to have uh, dedicated courts reporters. Sometimes you've got dedicated federal court reporters. Sometimes you have dedicated state court reporters. Sometimes you have just reporters labeled as criminal justice reporters or um, crime reporters. It all depends on, on where you're at in, in the country or elsewhere across the world. But most news outlets that serve a, ge a geography will have legal affairs or or other kinds of court reporters. Those are typically the people that you're gonna to wanna to go to first, but sometimes you might target other reporters who cover the industry that you are suing. So for example, a little while back, I had a client who was representing the family of a woman who died after she wandered out of her nursing home in the Philadelphia area and fell about 20 feet off of a cliff outside the oh uh, outside the nursing home uh, to the sidewalk below, eventually died. We had great uh, we we had great quality surveillance footage of the woman leaving the building and walking around. We don't have her hitting the ground, but we had her walking around um, and eventually falling. So, in terms of reporters, there were you could go to a court reporter, but I was able to find reporters locally who cover. 
um, nursing home industry, the healthcare industry, the the senior living industry, the senior living issues uh, that that uh, elderly people face in terms of health and finance and society. So sometimes you'll find reporters who cover the the area that your defendant might be operating in. Sometimes you'll have industry trade publications, and I think that's another area where attorneys don't pick up. Uh, don't pick up on and use their advantage. So for example, if you're suing a nursing home, why not go to some of the national nursing home publications and go tell your client's story to that publication? Those publications often are looking for content and certainly, a, depending on the allegations, uh, if you are alleging some kind of widespread wrongdoing or some kind of really uh, brutal misconduct at the hands of a nursing home, why won't you go to the industry newspaper or magazine that covers that um, that uh, that nursing home or that industry? So first, we first we have to uh, uh, be proactive. We target who we want to talk with, and then we have to actually talk to them and explain what the case is about and explain why they're interested. So this is where you have defamation coming a lot, and in most most states across the country, I should say, in many states across the country. When attorneys send copies of complaints that they filed and signed that contain defamatory allegations to uh, a, a reporter, a media outlet, they will not get the protection of the litigation privilege uh, from defamation. It's brutal, it is bad case law. I have that at the Pennsylvania Supreme Court level. The as filed court stamped copy of a complaint, if that's sent to a reporter in Pennsylvania under current case law, you as an attorney as a matter of law can be liable for defamation because the idea is that when you sent that 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 uh, complaint you no longer satisfy the elements that pennsylvania requires to get litigation privilege to apply to out-of-court statements uh, so and the problem, problem. is you're in a, in a state like texas where you do have it you know if you're getting national exposure you may end up getting sued in the state that doesn't have it so you still exactly have to think right. about it Exactly right. So, so my number one tip is to try not to send copies of complaints to reporters. Give them the docket number. Give them the the doc the docu excuse me the docket number and the document number. And they'll go find it. Reporters know their way around Pacer. They know their way around the court uh, the courthouse in your local area. Uh, so you might want to stay away from sending complaints just just as a matter of you know, good hygiene. Uh, but so you still can explain to the reporter what you're alleging. You know, dear, dear so-and-so, I just filed a lawsuit that I think you might be interested in based on your beat at, you know, insert publication here. Uh, we filed a, a complaint against XYZ Nursing Home. In that complaint, we allege that, that such and such happened. Um, if you would like some more information, I'd be happy to talk to you. I might be able to put you in contact with my client. You know, sincerely, Wayne Pollock. You want to be proactive. You want to give them a little bit of information. You are not writing a treatise here. You're writing a paragraph or two. What, what happened? Why it's important? You want to stay away from defamation. So make sure you say the lawsuit alleges, the complaint alleges, as we claim. You, you want to make sure that you are sprinkling in that magic pixie dust language that helps set you apart from defamatory claims because it's a truthful claim for you to say that the complaint alleges. So that's easy to do. Remember to do that. And then uh, see, what, see what the reporter does. Give the reporter a day or two 
and then follow up with the reporter via email and say, hey, I emailed you a couple days ago. I just want to see if you were interested. Uh, if they don't get back to you, sometimes just, they were just too busy. But sometimes that's, that, that is their way of saying no. And usually if you email a reporter twice or three times, by that time, they'll, they'll get back to you and say yes or no. I've had instances where a reporter has gotten back to me three, four days later, three or four business days later about a lawsuit and they've still ran the lawsuit. Most reporters will view the newsworthiness of a lawsuit, especially of a lawsuit being filed, as, as depleting over time because it happened today. But then if they cover it in three, four days from now, it's not as newsworthy. Uh, so you have to be quick. If you're filing a complaint on a Tuesday, well, email that reporter that, that day as soon as you filed it. Uh, don't let it just be discovered by them. Try and, and put your thumb on the scale here and help them find the case by telling them about the case. So we have the general idea of being proactive. We have the targeting. And we finally have the actual engagement of the reporter. Cool. And then what is the level where, you know, there's some line between where people feel comfortable trying to do it themselves and when people need to bring in a professional like you, where is that line? Yeah, that's, it's going to be different for every, uh, for every law firm. Some law firms like yours have great marketing people inside and out of the firm that could perhaps do it themselves. Other firms have more thinly staffed uh, uh, of a structure and they only have attorneys and maybe like an admin who is expected to do the marketing. As I said, I think if you are on a low public relations or marketing budget, I think you need to consider if it's worth it for you to hire someone from the outside to, to handle this kind of work. If you're just thinking about getting publicity for cases that you're filing, if you're thinking about just um, you know, getting some press releases out there about you winning a motion to dismiss or a summary judgment. If you're getting into more complex cases on the plaintiff side, if you're involved in MDLs, you're involved in class actions, and you've got co-counsel involved, I think you might want to start thinking more and more about what you are going to be doing in terms of outside help, because there just isn't enough time in the day for most attorneys to tackle public relations um, as its own beast, especially when it comes to high profile cases. If you're a civil rights attorney, if you're an attorney who's filing cases that tend to get publicity on a semi-frequent basis, then you're going to want to outsource that because you just don't have the time and energy to do that uh, and to, to talk with reporters. I would say that most law firms, most law firms, if they had an active PR person working on their behalf and they had truly newsworthy cases, I think uh, uh, a, a decent expectation would be about two or one, one to two times a quarter. You can expect publicity for a case that you filed. Again, if you have the right type of cases, there are some law firms that I work with where it's once a quarter or once every six months. And then I've got law firms that I've worked with where we've had eight press conferences across the country in 10 months, just based on their practice and based on the types of cases that they've been involved in. So it depends on your level of difficulty and depends on, on what you wanna do. I'm sure, Michael, that you scaled up your marketing efforts as your firm grew, as you had more of a budget, as you saw that there was an opportunity for you to grow the business with the help of marketing. And it's a similar, same way with, with, with uh, law firms and the public relations. Now, some PR firms, and marketing firms will do, again, litigation communications. They'll talk to the media on your behalf of your clients. And that's great. 
And for many law firms, uh, that will be sufficient. But there are some times where you want more help in terms of the ethics issues, the defamation issues, and having a better understanding of, of the, 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 um, uh, the, the way that media strategy and legal strategy play off each other. And if that's the case, you might want to think about going to someone who's more of an expert with more special, uh, specialized expertise in that area. Yeah, because there are some lessons. I've been sued twice for defamation. Uh, wouldn't change anything I said, but it's just uh, part of doing high-profile cases is sometimes they try to silence you, and uh, you know you definitely have to, you know, getting advice and help on the front end is a better idea than having to deal with it in a lawsuit on the back end or a grievance on the back end. Uh, I got a couple uh, more questions. Add, let me go ahead. Uh, I was going to add, Michael, that, that one thing, too, is that sometimes PR firms don't want to get into active litigation. Many PR firms will not get into active litigation because they just don't understand it, and they, they, they'll do crisis communication. So, you know, if, if the client of a PR firm has some kind of fire or, you know, has some kind of accident, they'll hop in there with, with the crisis response. But for many PR firms, Active litigation, they've been taught by lawyers they've worked with to never talk about active litigation. We see this on the corporate defense side all the time where they'll say, you know, we don't comment on pending litigation. Well, that's because the spokespeople and the outside PR people don't have the expertise or the lawyers that they report to don't understand how to use the court of public opinion. So one thing to keep in mind if, if for any listeners who have their PR firms already, that some of those PR firms might when it gets down to it, not want to go to uh, get involved in active litigation because they're uncomfortable with it. So that's another consideration as well. Okay. One other question I have is uh, the scariest thing for me when I'm dealing with a reporter is they always want to talk to my client. How do you deal with that? It scares that, you know, there's no rules of evidence. You don't know what their agenda is going to be. You don't know for sure whether that's a good idea or not. I usually don't let them, but I'm just asking what you think about that. We as attorneys are, are, are funny people for a number of reasons. We will prep a client out the wazoo for a deposition session or for a day of trial testimony. And then we will sometimes arrange an interview with a client and get on the phone two minutes before uh, an interview with a media uh, outlet and get on the phone two minutes before and just see if they're okay. Uh, I think that's laughable. I would treat an interview with a client as a mini deposition or as a mini uh, a trial session, and I would prepare them. I would spend an hour, maybe two, walking through uh, the the claims, walking through the case, and doing a, a little bit of mock interviewing. So on one hand, I do think if, an, if a client wants to talk about their case, I think attorneys ethically should allow them to do so if upon further reflection, the clients and the attorneys understand and agree that there could be something gained by talking to the media and telling the client's story. On the other hand, once that decision's been made, the attorney needs to prep the client. And we're not talking, you know, showing documents and, and showing uh, medical records like you might do for a deposition prep, but, but I mean, just walking the client through what they can expect during this interview, um, what kinds of questions the reporter might ask, what kinds of key themes and key points we want to get out about the case, about the claims. And this is a great example, Michael, where you might want to bring in out, uh, outside help to help prep a client for a media interview, because that's not something most attorneys will be able to do uh, just based on 
their normal legal practice. So I'm fine with it. I think there are times where it's appropriate and, and effective, but you can't, you can't let the client go in there unprepared. I think you are just courting disaster if you do. I guess one kind of last, uh, unfortunately, I've got people lining up outside my door. I've been out all last week, uh, but I do have one other thing. You mentioned the McDonald's coffee case. A good friend of mine, Reed Morgan, uh, tried that case, and he got ambushed in the media when he met with Stossel before Stossel had become well-known as a conservative pro-corporate journalist. So when he got interviewed, he thought that the media was sympathetic with the case. You know, he viewed it as, you know, there's a company serving coffee too hot for human consumption. Hundreds of people have been burned in the past. They wouldn't settle reasonably. And finally, you know, a jury's telling him enough. Uh, and then the, the story that was told was entirely different uh, than what he thought it was going to be from the interviews. Uh, and he just got killed with it. Uh, and we all did. How do you deal with that? How do you recognize when someone is going to be out to kill your case and what do you do to deal with it and prevent it from happening well there's there's little that you could do to prevent the editing and the ultimate final product that might distort a bit of uh the story and what the attorney or what the client says there's just you, know, you have very little control over it what you could do is you could look at the reporter or the media outlet's prior stories. Are they the kind of media outlet that is willing to give you a fair shake? Or are, do they have an agenda? Is their goal to you know, string you out and hang you up to dry because they want to send a message and they want great ratings and, and great ratings or great online viewers come from making uh, someone look bad. So you do your homework to the extent possible and if you decide that you want to take the interview and you decide that you want to go on and, and, and tell the story, you have to keep in the back of your mind the idea that this person might be trying to screw me. And you have to, again, prepare and frame the case and frame the messages that you want to get out about the case in a way that will be difficult for the clients, oh, sorry, for the media outlet to distort. Now, right. that, many years ago, that would have been all you could do. But in this current age of websites and social media, you should certainly be thinking about a rebuttal if you end up being on the receiving end of, of what you might uh, call a hatchet job. You should be thinking about how can I rebut in the court of public opinion after the story has come out? Can I post a transcript of the entire interview? if possible. Can I uh, post the entire video, the video of the entire interview, if possible? Can I give my side of the story and uh, explain how I think I was screwed by this reporter? Can I, uh, will the media outlet allow me to um, respond or rebut? If it's a newspaper, can I write an op Ed, can I have an editorial board meeting? Can I meet with the reporter again? There are things that you might be able to do now with technology that you probably couldn't do when McDonald's coffee case came out, but you have to be thinking 
if you've prepared, if you think you've done what you could have done to have an effective interview that was favorable to you and your client, and you still feel that you've gotten screwed, what are the steps you could take after to tell your story in a way that will win back the public, win back any referral sources who may have been rubbed the wrong way, win back prospective clients, your peers, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you. This has been really interesting. I'm sorry I've kind of got to wrap it up, but uh, I know we could probably go on for hours. But if one of our listeners wants to learn more, wants to, is there, first of all, is there a way, do you have a website or anything where people could learn more about you and what you do and about this area? And then two, if someone does want to talk to you or contact you, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. So, th so thank you again for, for having me on. And I hope that we've given your listeners uh, plenty of information that they can start using as soon as this podcast is over in terms of engaging the court of public opinion for their clients and their cases. My, my firm's name is Copo Strategies, C-O-P-O. It stands for court of public opinion. So www.copostrategies.com. You, you'll have links to uh, all my social media uh, pages, all the firm social media pages. We have plenty of resources, free resources for attorneys and their clients to review about engaging the media. We've got some free guides uh, you can download about mistakes lawyers make when they talk to the media. We have an infographic uh, uh, that provides attorneys with a script whenever a reporter called calls them, a script they could use each and every time to respond to the reporter, no matter what the, the uh, question is. Copostrategies.com, uh, they can get a hold of me that way. And uh, if, if, if anyone here uh, wants to chat, just please reach out and let me know you heard uh, Michael and I's con conversation on Trial Lawyer Nation. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on Ratings and Review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners, and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join our private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind-the-scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com 
to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.